All right. Well, and, and thank you for coming. I know it's the middle of summer. Um, I know there's lots of other things to do rather than study the major prophets. So I thank you guys for being here. By the way, this uh, Jeremiah, so I'm, I'm not even going to ask if everybody's caught up on their reading. All right. So we're not going to do any public displays of humiliation. Um, can you hear me? Am I, am I echoey? Okay. Um, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible by word count. I know we think of Psalms as being the longest book because it's got 150 chapters, but Jeremiah is actually the longest. I, I would say my experience is Isaiah It is pretty, I can track with Isaiah for the most part a lot of times. Um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a tough one for me. Uh, Jeremiah gets, gets a little bogged down in places. Uh, there's some really long chapters in Jeremiah. I know you got Jeremiah coming up. I know that's going to inspire you. Um, Ezekiel has some real high points and then some real slow points, in my experience. And then Daniel, you know, once you get to Daniel, then things are looking up and then, and then things get... Uh, have, are, um, what thoughts on, the, thoughts on the prophets? Like, just give me, your, give me your impressions when you think of reading the prophets. A lot of information. Did somebody say long? Yeah. Doom and gloom. There's a lot of doom and gloom. Hope. Prophecy. Yes. Yeah, so there, there's also a lot of prophecy, a lot of future stuff. That's right. So I remember the first time I sat down and I'm like, I'm going to just read Jeremiah. And I remember being like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> So, all right, so here's my goal then. Uh, my goal, we cannot cover these five books in any uh, comprehensive way tonight in an hour and 15 minutes. So my goal tonight is to try to give you some context for these prophets, for these books, try to get to know these prophets better, try to get to know when they're writing better with the hope that then we'll be able to understand more about what's going on as we approach the, the books of the prophets, okay? So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up the Word of God, an area that is considered by many probably to be obscure. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to, to kind of see through some of what seems so obscure and to understand better what it is that you're teaching us, what it is that you're showing us in these sections of Scripture. Father, I thank you that you have uh, left us with so much that speaks to world events and the things that are going on in the world, in the past, in the present, and the things that are going to happen in the future. And Father, I pray that you would give us hope. I pray that you would give us comfort. Um, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see Christ better as we look into these prophets. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm starting off here in your notes with a little introduction to prophetism, okay? So we want to get to know the prophets better. Probably one of the most important things that I always like to say about prophets is they did not only tell the future, right? I think sometimes we can have this idea that their job was to only speak about future events. That was not their entire job. I have a definition there. The Old Testament prophet acted as a mouthpiece for God, receiving a message from God and proclaiming it in accordance with his commands. By the way, I shared with y'all some of what went on in my life this week. 
I finished these notes at 8.30 this morning and sent them to Sonia to be printed. They have not, I, I, I finished them and I never looked back at them. Okay, so they have not been proofread, so you're probably going to find lots of funny things and things don't make any sense, so forgive me. It, it literally went out as it was, so there you go. Uh, okay, so the, the Old Testament prophet acted as a mouthpiece for God, receiving a message from God and proclaiming it in accordance with his commands. So you have these sort of three offices in the, in the Old Testament, the, 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 the prophet, the priest, and the king, the, the king who is the ruler, the, the priest who is the, um, you know, has sort of the access to God, the intermediary with God, and then we even talked about that this office of prophet starts to arise in the days of the monarchs, especially the court prophet. We'll see Isaiah was a court prophet, a prophet who was speaking especially to the king and proclaiming God's commands and saying, here's what's going to happen if you don't start to obey. So that's, that's sort of the, the office of the prophet that we're looking at. Characteristics, a special call. You did not become a prophet by inheritance or by inheritance. See, there you go. Um, you, you, you didn't become a prophet by being born into a particular tribe. So if you were born into a, the tribe of Levi, you were a priest, right? If you were going to be a king, you had to be born from the tribe of Judah. It wasn't like that with the prophets. And then a prophet, a false prophet, could be identified because they were not called of God. Jeremiah 14, 14, the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And it was a, it was a pretty um, serious offense if you proclaimed to be a prophet, if you claimed to speak for Yahweh and you did not speak for Yahweh, and there was, there was provision for that, in the law, and we see several times in the prophets where people, people claim to speak for God, and then the true prophet calls them out, and, and they're, they're judged for that. The prophets were uh, often had to be very courageous, so they were often given messages that people weren't going to like. The, the first example, the first and probably clearest example of this is little Samuel, who is called as a child, right? And and he receives that, it was in 1 Samuel 3, he receives that message from God, and Eli comes and says, well, what did God say to you? And he, he doesn't want to tell him, and Eli says, may, Eli says to little, you know, get this little kid here, and Eli says, may what is, may what is prophesied in that happen to you if you don't tell me? <laughs> and Samuel says, well, okay, and, and, and he tells, he has to tell Eli, his, his mentor, his, uh, very much a father figure, he has to proclaim to him that your, your sons are going to die and God is going to remove the priesthood from you, which is a really hard message, right? So they, they have to be courageous. Um, we'll see Jeremiah, who really, really preaches a message that nobody wants to hear in his day. Um, and then third, they are authoritative messengers from God. So they, they use introductory formulas like, thus says Yahweh, or concluding with, um, says Yahweh, or they, they get a commission where they're told, go and say, or thus says Yahweh. So uh, E.J. Young finds 3,800 such expressions in the Old Testament, and it's very important to understand that the, the idea is that the prophet is speaking for Yahweh, and thus his words bear all the authority of God 
and are demonstrably and perfectly true as that which was spoken by the God of truth. Okay, so it's very, very important role that the, they have to be courageous because they're speaking the words of God and they're speaking uh, words that people are not going to want to hear. A summary then of the teaching of the Old Testament regarding the role of the prophet. A, generally the prophet was one who had received a message from Yahweh and who delivered that message to God's people. And then B, specifically, the prophet functioned in several ways important to the life of the people in the nation of Israel. He was responsible to cry out against prevailing sin, to bring a message of consolation and pardon, to warn of approaching danger, to correct abuses in the religion of Yahweh, to rebuke and direct the leaders of the theocracy. So I, I think that when you, th when you see prophecy, when you see the act of prophecy as communicating the word of God, you know, people talk about the gift of prophecy today, and I think that, you know, that is often construed as the ability to speak the future, right? Um, you know, I've, I've been in services where, you know, somebody, you know, does anybody have a word from the Lord? And somebody says, you know, I've received a word from the Lord that, you know, somebody in here with a backache is going to be healed tonight, you know, and, and somebody else, you know, somebody, oh, I had a backache and it's gone, you know. So, I mean, I think that there's like this general thought that, you know, there's this, this gift of prophecy or, or, or whatever you would call it. But when you see prophecy as taking the word of God and explaining it or, or bringing it to people in a way that says, thus saith the Lord, you know, like there's a sense in which we are still active in that today, right? There's a, there's a, sense, a sense in which anybody who proclaims the word of God on a Sunday morning who stands in a pulpit and says, thus says the Lord, because, not, not because I've received it separately, but because I've, you know, it's here and here's what the word of God says, then, you know, in some senses that, that act of prophesying, you know, still continues today. But then obviously in the Old Testament, we're talking about a very specific group of people who had a, a very specific call to receive the word of God and to speak it to the people of Israel. One thing I read this week too is, you know, the prophets of Israel are unique in all other cultures. They're, the the one thing that, that, that a lot of people when they write about the prophets in the Old Testament bring out is they, these prophets were not they were not given to ecstasy, you know, so you have in, in other cultures these ecstatic prophets who get work themselves into a frenzy and, and, you know, utilize all manner of accessing the gods. That's not what the Old Testament prophets did. They, they were normal people. Many of them were normal people, you know. I mean, Amos is said to have been a sycamore farmer who receives a call from the Lord to go and, and to, to speak the truth to the people of the northern kingdom, right? So they're, they're just very normal people who receive a call, um, and yeah, they're not, they're, they're different from any other, any other sense of prophecy in any other culture. All right, any, that's, a, that's just a high-level view of prophets and prophesying. Any questions? Anything to pick up on? No. All right, well, let's move then to the book of Isaiah. Uh, I, so I think we're in our reading, we're in the book of Isaiah right now, right? If, if let's say we were it, where we're supposed to be, I, I believe Isaiah is where we are supposed to be. Is that right? Are we beyond that? 
just finished Isaiah. Okay, so this is all fresh in your minds. Um, okay, so the, his name means Yahweh is salvation. Uh, he was the son of a guy named Amos. He was married. His wife uh, is called the prophetess, and uh, he has two sons that have very funny names. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make too much fun because some of you might have brothers or something. But um, in 7.3, uh, his son is named Shir, Shiar Jashub, and then in 8.3, he has a son, and he names him uh, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. So some of you who are having little Heather and Tyler, throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah, we'll put that on there. Um, uh, tradition says that he died at the hands of King Manasseh, because he continued to cry out against the sins of the monarch. Also, tradition says that he was sawn in pieces. Hebrews 11:37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. I think the, the <clears throat> real tradition, I mean, the fullest tradition is that he was put into a hollowed out log <clears throat> and sawed in two. So, again, courageous, courageous individuals. Um, okay, so the historical setting of Isaiah. Okay, so when you get into the book of Isaiah, the first five chapters are, are sort of introduction, okay, and then we come to chapter 6, and in chapter 6-1, Isaiah is called as a prophet. Um, that's, that's sort of the famous, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he's taken up, and he's given the vision. If, if you don't know Isaiah 6, you should know Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah goes into the court of the Lord in the heavens, and the uh, cherubim with, the, with, two, with six wings, so with two they cover their eyes, and with two they fly, and with two they cover their feet, and they, they fly around the throne of God, and they sing all the time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And I, you know, I always, I used to tell middle schoolers, because I would always teach this passage, I would say, you know, that, maybe that sounds really boring to you, that your only job in the universe is to just fly around the throne of God and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I, I, I think that probably these are some of the most fulfilled, fulfilled beings in, that God has created. Like, they're still there to this day. We can assume they are there, and, and they are calling out uh, to God. And, and Isaiah receives that he receives that call, right? And, and he actually, uh, you know, God sort of says, you know, who, who will go? And you know, we sort of, we sometimes see that as like, you know, Isaiah is very courageous, and he goes, I will go, you know? I mean, it's possible that Isaiah looks around, and there's these flying beings, you know, covering their, their eyes and their feet, and he's the only human, you know, in the place, and, you know, it's quite possible that Isaiah was more like, I guess that's me, you know? And so God gives him this very important, um, well, let's, let's look at it. Isaiah 6, God gives him this very important commission that gets repeated, by the way, by Jesus in the Gospels, and then it actually gets repeated once again at the, in the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts. Um, but God, so, so um, verse 8, he says, Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their, see with their eyes and hear with their ears 
and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah, who will go for me? Okay, I'll go. Okay, well, you're going to go, and you're going to preach to a people, and they're not going to hear, and they're not going to see, and they're not going to understand, and you're going to preach judgment to them. You're going to tell them that there's judgment coming upon you, and they're going to ignore you, and they will be judged, and they will be sent to a land far away. I mean, I, you know, that's, this is, this is, Isaiah's commission, and so we have there, continuing on with the historical setting of Isaiah, he ministers uh, during four reigns of successive kings. He functions as the court prophet for about 50 years under Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And then I have there that he prophesied when Assyria was the dominant world power. Let me tell you something I think is interesting about the organization of Isaiah. I don't I don't know how actually healthy, uh, healthy, uh, helpful this is, or if it, if it is part of the intention of Isaiah, but I don't know if you know. So there's only two narrative sections in Isaiah. So there's a short narrative section in chapter 7 where Isaiah comes to Ahaz the king, and that's the whole, like, there, you know, a virgin will give, will give birth to a, to a child. He basically comes to Ahaz and, and tries to say, that, you know, God is going to give you victory, uh, and Ahaz sort of, like, doesn't want to hear it, doesn't respond well. Okay, so there's that one in chapter 7, and then at the, at, at the end of that first section of Isaiah in chapters 37, 38, 39, you have the, the, ish, the, um, the, the situation with Hezekiah, and Sennacherib's army surrounding the temple, okay? So you have these two narrative sections that sort of like bookend that, so you've got, you've got Ahaz, he responds badly, and then you have all of the like judgment that's going to come upon Israel, and then you have Hezekiah who responds well, and then in that, in that last part of the book, chapters 40 through 66, you have the, the sort of future look, the redemption. At the end of the book, you have the, um, the, the sections about the new heaven and the new earth, okay? So I, I just think it's, it's interesting to me. I don't, I don't necessarily know what to do with that, but you've got, you know, so it, it, it looks like, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you've decided this is interesting or not, but I'm going to keep going with it. So, you've, you know, you've got this one through six, which is like, you know, intro and call, and then, you know, seven, which is uh, narrative, through all the way to chapter 39, which is another narrative portion. You know, so this, this is a lot of, like, judgment. And then 40 to 66, which is, is stuff about future hope. So it's just, it's kind of, well, I'll have, I have another little short, se- short section there about how Isaiah is, is laid out. Um, but I just I think that's interesting that you've got those two narrative sections there. Um, Isaiah prophesied when Assyria was the dominant world power. Isaiah watched as Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to Assyria. He was prophesying to Judah at that time. 
Assyria besieged Jerusalem in 701 BC. Hezekiah appealed to Isaiah. The two went to Yahweh in prayer and Jerusalem was delivered. The basic message of Isaiah in all of these times is trust in Yahweh. However, Judah continued to look to alliances with foreign nations to fortify herself against her enemies. Throughout the prophets, that is a huge issue. Israel looking to unite themselves with foreign nations in order to save themselves from invaders. This is a central issue of the prophets. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go down to Egypt and make an alliance. Trust in Yahweh, right? Ahaz does not trust in Yahweh. Um, Hezekiah does trust in Yahweh. Hezekiah, when, when Sennacherib is surrounding the city, Hezekiah goes to Isaiah, the two of them come to Yahweh, and Yahweh delivers. If, if the kings of Israel will just trust in Yahweh, Yahweh delivers them every single time. So it's, it's really a very simple message that is ignored over and over again. Uh, prophets contemporary to Isaiah, prophets to Israel, Amos and Hosea, and then a prophet to Judah is Micah. And then religious conditions during the ministry of Isaiah, the northern kingdom to which Isaiah did not personally prophesy fell during the ministry of Isaiah. <coughs> By the times of Isaiah, the southern kingdom had fallen so deeply into sin and rebellion that God had already promised that judgment was soon to fall. Other prophets had been raised up by Yahweh and come to their nation. Their message had been rejected, and now Isaiah is sent with a message that judgment would fall and the people would submit to it and learn the lesson that God had for them. Do you all remember the, 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 we went through Isaiah 53 at Easter on Good Friday, the lament, and you, so that was the last of those suffering servant passages that take place in that second part of the book, you know, that this is where, you know, yes, they're going to be judged and the judgment is gonna be bad, but there's, there's hope for them in the future and that hope comes through that suffering servant. So then, number three there, a summary of Isaiah's message. He was to try to save the nation from its idolatry and wickedness, but failing in that, he was announced to announce to the nation that they would certainly be destroyed in judgment from God, but the destruction would not be complete, a, a remnant would be saved, and Yahweh would use that remnant to produce an individual who would bring all nations of the earth to him. That individual who would one day come from the family of David is the Messiah, the perpetual and only hope of Israel. My encouragement to you as you read the prophets, I think one of the worst ways that you can read the prophets is to read some of these prophecies and say, I don't know what that means, but it can't possibly mean what it says it means. I think that is the wrong way to read the prophets because there's, there are some things that, I mean, from, from our point of view, it's like, I don't know how that can mean that, right? Um, but I, I think, you know, that we ought, we ought certainly to take the prophets at their word when they say certain things and unless there's, unless there's some reason, you know, later on in the scripture or some other scripture to, scripture to compare with them to, to say, you know, okay, maybe it doesn't mean exactly what it, it sounds like it means. 
Um, because if, if you read through these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel especially, and you just look at some of the promises of God that are there, many of those promises not fulfilled. Many of them, some of them have been fulfilled, but many of them have not been fulfilled. And it, it is a very encouraging thing to just read these prophets and to look at those promises and to say, God, this, this it, it sounds crazy, but that's what God is, is saying that he is going to do. I have read, I wish I had this quote, I read it one time, uh, but I have read that in the early church that they always included a reading from the prophets in their worship services. That there would be like a, a reading from the New Testament, but there would also always be a reading from the prophets in their services. Um, and I, I mean, I think a lot of people just don't know some of the glorious things that are contained in, in, in some of these books. Having, having, you know, I'm curious, having read Isaiah, or, or maybe you've read Isaiah in the past, did, did you read anything that stuck out to you as exciting or crazy or what in the world? I'd, I'd say that's, that's a good example of like, okay, I don't know what that means, but I don't see how it could possibly mean that. And that's, that's, I think that's a good example of a passage that we can, we can say, okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll see. I, I, Isaiah 11, uh, 8, it, I, it, it always trips me up, but it says, the wolf shall lay down with the lamb. I, I don't, you know, we've always heard that as the lion shall lay down with the lamb. And I don't know if that's like a old translation or if I'm missing something there. The wolf shall lay down with the, shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's always an, an exciting passage to get to. Um, <clears throat> all right, the structure of the book then. <clears throat> Judah is set uh, <clears throat> upon by various pagan nations. The great temptation faced by each king is to trust in alliances rather than in Yahweh. <clears throat> the emphasis then is that Yahweh intends for Israel to serve him as a servant, and the true servant is characterized by two important features. A servant trusts in the one he serves, always simply obeys rather than questioning the wisdom of his master, and the servant is anxious for the glory of the one he serves. <clears throat> so a suggested structure then of the book, based upon these two features, Israel's sin and its solution, that's the introduction in chapters 1 through 6, the basis of servanthood, trust in Yahweh, uh, chapters 7 through 35. Is God to be trusted, or will Ahaz place his faith in Assyria? And Isaiah develops this truth. Uh, and then the goal of servanthood, the glory of Yahweh in chapters 36 through 66. Is God to be glorified, or will Hezekiah take the glory to himself? And again, Isaiah develops this truth along three distinct and very compelling lines. So that's just, I did not, I did not chose to choose to go into an, a lengthy outline of the book. There's no way that we can cover all of that, but that's a, a general outline of Isaiah. 
Isaiah 65 um, is as clear and exciting a presentation of the, the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth as any that you will find anywhere. Um, there's lots of stuff in all of the prophets, of course, that are, um, <coughs> uh, that are uh, repeated in, in uh, <coughs> Revelation. But 65:17, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into my mind, or come into mind, uh, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. So uh, a real statement there in that chapter about um, the, what, what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. All right, so Isaiah, 66 chapters of Isaiah. Like I said, I generally think that you can bop along. I'll tell you where I struggle. I don't know about you guys, but I struggle with the judgments on the other nations. That's where I start to get a little bogged, you know, judgment on Damascus, judgment on Philistia, judgment on Tyre, judgment. And I'm sure those are all really important places, and they're, all, they're places that it, it mattered a lot to them back then, but some of, those, some of those are places where I think it's hard for me to find a context when you're just reading long judgments on nations that have disappeared, you know, years ago. And, you know, I feel like my main application that I can get from that over and over again is just God's word comes true, right? Because a lot of those nations don't exist anymore. So eventually, or they're certainly not as powerful as they once were. Another interesting thing to me is that Egypt is still around. And every now in the prophets, you, there's, a, there's an affinity for Egypt. They're, they're judged, but there's a, just like what uh, Tyler read there, you know, that there'll be this highway between Israel and that'll run through Israel between Assyria and Egypt. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that Egypt, of all, you know, we, nobody visits Assyria anymore, um, but, you know, uh, Egypt is still around, you know, after all of that. I used to have this thing that I would say to teenagers, like sometimes where I would be like, you know, when was the last time you met a Hittite or something like that? And I, one time I was, I was up and I said, you know, have any of you ever met a Persian, you know? And, and like two kids raised their hand and they're like, we're from Iran. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> they're still Persians, <laughs> forgive me. Um, so I, I quit, I quit going with that uh, after that. So, all right, any other thoughts, questions about Isaiah? Moab is... Uh, Moab and Eden, Edom is Jordan, you know, in the Old Testament. And there, there also seems to be a pretty special place for Moab and Edom, uh, you know, in the, in the future. So I, there, there are some who believe that a lot is still to transpire in the, in the land that is called Jordan today. So Sonia's from Jordan. She grew up in Jordan. Um, all right, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, who was Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a priest. He was the son of Hilkiah. He lived in the city of Anathoth. He's often called the weeping prophet. Um, concerning the death of Jeremiah, there are two traditions. Uh, the Christian tradition was he was stoned to death by the Jews in Egypt. The Jewish tradition is that when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Egypt, Jeremiah and Baruch were able to escape, after which they made their way to Babylon where Jeremiah died in peace among the Jews in exile there. Um, I have that note there. Remember that Jeremiah watched as Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, but he was not taken captive. So Nebuchadnezzar appointed 
Gedaliah as governor of Palestine, but after Nebuchadnezzar departed, some Jews in Palestine murdered Gedaliah, and fearing retribution, the, the Jews fled to Egypt, and they took Jeremiah with, him, with them. So that, that is actually contained within the storyline of Jeremiah. By the way, Jeremiah circles back on itself often. So within the content of Jeremiah, you know, because if, if you even just pay attention to some of the kings, there'll be a, a section of Jeremiah where there's, you know, a prophecy regarding this king, and then there'll be another section later to a prophecy regarding this king, but that king was before this king. So Jeremiah seems to be laid out more them- thematically than, um, than uh, chronologically. I have a note there on the character of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's character is most interesting. We find him sensitive to a most painful degree, timid, shy, hopeless, despondent, constantly complaining and dissatisfied, but never flinching from his duty. Uh, Timid in resolve, he was unflinching in execution, as fearless when he had to face the whole world as he was dispirited and prone to murmuring when he was alone with God. Some of us might can relate to that show. Um, So the historical setting then of Jeremiah, the prophet was called in 626 B.C., um, <clears throat> this is about a hundred years after the ministry of Isaiah um, and the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria. So just to put that in historical context for you, Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom. Sennacherib came down. He besieged Jerusalem. God defeated them. Sennacherib went back to Nineveh. He got killed by his two sons. And so it's a hundred years later. So now, you know, after Hezekiah, we've had Manasseh. Um, and, and then into the ministry of King Josiah that um, Manasseh, I think, reigned for like 55 years. So Manasseh reigned for a long time, and so Jer- Jeremiah picks up about 100 years later. This is 20 years before the first invasion and deportation by Nebuchadnezzar, and Jeremiah prophesies for over 40 years, and he ministers through the reigns of the last five kings of Judah, which isn't saying much because some of them don't last so long during that time. Uh, There's also a later phase of Jeremiah's ministry after the fall of the city of Jerusalem in 586. We already talked about that. He's under the the, uh, Gedaliah, who's appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, and then he gets taken to Egypt by the Jews, and he's an aged prophet at one time. Jeremiah was the last of the pre-exilic. So so just to put that in mind, so we've got pre-exilic prophets, exilic prophets, and post-exilic prophets. So Jeremiah is the last of the prophets who are prophesying before the exile, and he ministers during the final days of the southern kingdom, okay? And I have a a long quote there. You can read that yourself about Jeremiah ministering during the final days of the southern kingdom. Look at at Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah's call is very interesting. Uh, verse 4, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Tradition holds that Jeremiah was 13 when he received his call. So some of you, it's already a little late to get your call if you were in Jeremiah's shoes. Um, Then I said, Lord God, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, 
and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now listen, listen to what the Lord says here. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy, to build, to, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. I think it's very interesting that Jeremiah is called to be not, not just a prophet to Judah, but he is called to be a prophet to the nations. And if you read about what's going on during the time of Jeremiah, so I have there, notice at this time in history there were three powers which were struggling for supremacy. They were Assyria, so Assyria had been in control of the Mediterranean, and then you have Babylon that has begun to assert itself and will soon win dominance over Assyria, and then you have Egypt that's doing all that it can to assure that neither Assyria nor Babylon will win total dominance. Okay, so <clears throat> Jeremiah, Jeremiah is prophesying during this time of great historical change where we're transitioning out of the days of Assyria into the days of Babylon. And if you turn to Jeremiah 25, <clears throat> I don't know how this went down, but jump down to verse 15. So keeping in mind that Jeremiah is a prophet to the nations, it says, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the city of Judah and its kings and officials to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his officials, his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz and the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon. So he lists all these, and he, he closes there um, in verse 28, all the kings of the north and near one after the other and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Okay, what I think is interesting about that is that Jeremiah is prophesying at a time when history is changing, Babylon is about to become the dominant um, power, and, and Babylon is going to be very different than all of those kingdoms that had come before them. You know, so Babylon, when we get to Daniel then, begins that those four kingdoms that are going to lead up to the Messiah of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. All that to say, so I'd, I find it interesting that Jeremiah is called to be a prophet to the nations. In chapter 25, he is given this cup of wrath that God says, I want you to take to all of these different nations. And then by the time that Jeremiah is through and Babylon has come onto the scene, many of those nations don't exist anymore. It's, it's almost as though Jeremiah is, is like, it's not just Judah that's, that things are going to change. The, the whole world is changing under the ministry of Jeremiah. So I, I don't think I'm, I mean, if, when, you, when you consider those things, I don't think I'm overstating the importance of Jeremiah, not just to Judah, but to what's going on in the whole world at the time. 
all right? So then the purpose of the book of Jeremiah, the primary purpose to confront the nation of Judah with the reality that God was going to use Babylon to punish them and to exhort the people of Judah to submit to that punishment as from God. This is not a happy mission. It's been said that Jeremiah's office was like that of a minister obliged to accompany a criminal to the scaffold. Indeed, Jeremiah's prophetic assignment was to record the death agony of God's chosen people, Israel. Because Jeremiah kept exhorting Judah to submit to Babylon as the rod of divine anger, he was constantly accused of being a spy for the enemy. He was horribly hated and rejected. So part of his role was, as prophet was to keep going to these kings and saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Babylon is going to come. What you need to do is submit to Babylon. This kind of relates to what we were talking about this morning, right, with David. Like, David submits to the consequences of his sin, right? He submits to the consequences. He says, um, when he's headed out of Jerusalem, he says, you know, may the Lord do what is right for me. He says regarding um, Shemai, when Shemai is is cursing him, and, and Abiathar says, you know, let's cut that dog's head off, and, and, and David says, no, we're going to submit to what the Lord is doing here. This is the Lord's chastening. So Jeremiah is basically coming to the people of Judah with the same message. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Babylon is coming. If you will submit, things will go better for you. But they don't. And they keep trying to run off to Egypt for help. They keep trying to run off to other places for help. And ultimately, they get taken off to Babylon as a result. So he's considered to be a spy for the enemy over and over again. He gets thrown down in this cistern for a while, down in the muck, and he has to be down there, and they bring him bread. That's all he gets for a while. Um, And finally, they they come and they lift him out of there. He's horribly hated and rejected. (laughs) And then Jeremiah genuinely grieved over the message he bore to the nation. Thus the, I don't know what sobriquet means, most often, thus the sobriquet, sobriquet. Yeah, I have no idea what that was. So we'll just skip that one, and uh, we'll move down to the secondary purposes of the book. To register Yahweh's prophecies of judgment against foreign nations, to predict the precise length of the captivity in Babylon. Uh, that's also in Jeremiah 25. Yeah, I'll give you a couple. I'll give you for each major prophet a key passage. So in Isaiah, it was Isaiah 6. I think, in uh, Jeremiah. It might be Jeremiah 25. In Jeremiah 25, you have that prophecy against the nations, but you also have that prophecy in Jeremiah 25 where God says, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And then later on, Daniel is having his quiet time in Jeremiah one day, and he reads, it's supposed to be 70 years, and he looks at his calendar, and he says, hey, it's almost been 70 years. And in chapter 9 of Daniel, he goes and he prays, and he says, Lord, your word said it was going to be 70 years. It's almost 70 years, so take us home. And God does. And then finally, to assure the nation of Israel that in spite of the judgment to come uh, through Babylon, the promises of God to Israel will not be forsaken. The covenant nation will be restored and exalted. Um, All right. I think that's all that I have for Jeremiah. I have, there's one other interesting, there's so many interesting portions. There's all of the new covenant stuff. Jeremiah 31, 30, 31, and 32 are, are the passages about the new covenant. That's where we learn about the new covenant. But look with me real quick at Jeremiah 7. I think Jeremiah 7 is so relevant. So <clears throat> this, is, this is often referred to as the temple message. It's a message that Jeremiah gives. It's a self-contained message. So if you're about to start reading Jeremiah, 
Um, Jeremiah 7, 8, 9, and 10 is a self-contained message that he is to give. Look what it says. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, go stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates and worship the Lord. So talk about courageous. Jeremiah gets told by God, you need to go to the temple. So it would be like somebody going to a gigantic, let's say a gigantic megachurch somewhere in the United States. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to stand right outside the door. And as people are leaving, this is what I want you to preach. So they've already been in the temple. You know, in our context, they've already heard the preaching, as it were. And so they're, they're coming out, and you've got this crazy man standing on the side, outside the temple saying, thus, thus says the word of the Lord. And I won't read it all, but listen to what he says. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were saying, we're going to be fine because God is not going to let anything happen to his temple. This is, this is similar to the Ark of the Covenant thing, right? That a nation that has the Ark of the Covenant in front of it will never be defeated. Well, that's wrong because if your heart isn't right, it doesn't matter if you haul the Ark of the Covenant out. It's not a rabbit's foot. God will still bring you down, okay? It's the same with the temple. So they're saying, it's interesting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave your fathers forever. But you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Let me read this <clears throat> last part, and then we'll move on. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go back to doing all these abominations. I, I, it's just such a, it's such a, like, it, when, you, when you read it and when you think about it, it's such a clear, it's like, so he's standing in the gates and he says, you, you leave here, you, you go out and you commit adultery and you commit murder and you worship Baal and then you come back into the temple and you say, we're going to be fine. It's, it's also an interesting thing to me too because what is so clear in the prophets is that the, the nation had never, other, other than the time of Jezebel under Ahab, they never truly rejected Yahweh. They tried, to, they tried to have Yahweh plus. They thought they could worship Baals and worship Yahweh. And, and, and Jeremiah will not have it. And he's saying, you know, again, put, it, put yourself in the context of today, a megachurch, you know, you go out here and you live like that, but you come into this house and you sing your songs and you feel better about yourself and then you just go back out and you live and you think you've checked some kind of box. And Jeremiah says, that's... that's it's not going to help you. And he goes on. I, I'll stop there. But he goes on all the way through chapter 10. So <clears throat> if that's coming up for you, I think that chapters 7 through 10, if you know, right, just pencil it in above chapter 7 there, the, the temple message of, of Jeremiah. Yes, a person's nickname. Okay, a sobriquet. So does that, does that fit in the context of anything that I'm saying there? Oh, the sobriquet. It's a nickname. The weeping prophet. Yes. All right, well, there you go. Guys, I mean, 
just going to tell you, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm lifting all this stuff from somewhere, so. All right. Uh, Ezekiel. Man, Ezekiel's a tough one. Ezekiel's great, but Ezekiel's tough. Uh, any, I, I should say, any other questions, comments about Jeremiah? I feel like I've really set you up to, like, not look forward to Jeremiah, but there's some interesting things in there. Man, those last four chapters, though. Every time I get to those last four chapters, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. Um, all right, Ezekiel. His name means God will strengthen. <clears throat> I, y'all, I've had a throat thing for like 10 weeks. I think I gave it to Tyler. Um, but I, man, I am just, did I say 10 weeks? Two weeks. I meant to say two weeks. Um, 10 weeks, yeah. <clears throat> Can't shake it. It gets worse as the day goes. Um, okay, when was Ezekiel taken captive to Babylon? Ezekiel was taken in the second stage of deportation. So there are three stages of deportation culminating in the last deportation, which takes place in 586 BC, which is when Nebuchadnezzar um, conquers. Remember this, remember, there's the first, the first deportation, Daniel goes. So he comes and he takes all of the strong and effective young men, all the smart guys. He takes them to Babylon. Okay, and then the second deportation, he takes another group. Ezekiel goes in the second deportation, and then the third time Nebuchadnezzar comes, he destroys the place. Where did Ezekiel live in Babylon? He lived in his own house by the river Chabar. The river has been tentatively identified as a canal that circumvented the city of Babylon. When was Ezekiel called to prophetic ministry? Ezekiel records his call in chapter 1, one and two. He dates it. Um, uh, Ezekiel has a lot of dates. He really gives us some, some pretty, pretty specific dates. Uh, dates it as the fourth month, the fifth day of the fifth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which would have been July 31st, 593 BC. So we're coming up, coming up on an anniversary there. Um, and note that before this, the fall of Jerusalem was in 586 BC. Uh, but this was, I'm sorry, this is before the fall. Don't forget, B.C. goes the other direction. So 593 is before 586. Uh, when we were in Israel last month, Gus, Gus kind of pointed out everything in Israel, they use the B.C.E. They, they use the B.C.E. designation, you know, C.E. and B.C.E. And then, you know, it, that kind of makes sense because they kind of make sense that they don't want to base everything off when Jesus came, right? So they've switched over to, to B.C.E. Kind of bothers you sometimes to see that, but I know that's what everybody's doing these days. Um, what personal tragedy did Ezekiel suffer in relation to his wife? According to Ezekiel 24, Yahweh told Ezekiel he was going to take from the desire of your eyes in a stroke, and the prophet was not to weep or mourn, but to return immediately to his post as God's spokesman. This was in anticipation of the soon coming destruction of the marvelous temple of Solomon, and God intended the nation to accept this from him and issue mourning. I always think that's a really harsh section. So Ezekiel loses his wife as a part of the message, and the message is don't cry, don't mourn, because the temple is going to be destroyed, and the people shouldn't mourn over that. It's really, really, we talked about the prophets are really unique people. We didn't, we didn't talk about that Isaiah had to go like naked and barefoot for a year, at one point to demonstrate something. Um, All right, uh, F, what was the standing of Ezekiel in the community of the exile seems to have occupied a place of recognized leadership. 
He sits in his home in the presence of the elders of the nation. How long did his prophetic ministry last? Over 22 years. And we can, we can kind of see that because, like I said, he gives us so many dates. Nothing is known about the death of Ezekiel. It's conjectured that he lived to see the liberation of King Jehoiakim at the death of Nebuchadnezzar in 560 B.C. Um, Ezekiel is the first of the exilic prophets in the canon of the Old Testament. Uh, so he's, he's, all right, so, so Jeremiah is the last of the pre-exilic prophets. Ezekiel is the first of the exilic prophets. He was not the first in terms of chronology. Daniel had been carried off in the first stage of deportation and had commenced his ministry in the second year of his captivity. So he began his ministry in exile before Ezekiel was even taken captive. Ezekiel's prophecy is punctuated with chronological references, leaving no doubts as to the dates of his ministry. And then all of the prophetic ministry of Ezekiel was carried out in Babylon. Uh, the theme and purpose of Ezekiel. The theme of Ezekiel's prophecy, this captivity in Babylon, is necessary in order that God might bring his disobedient people back from apostasy and establish them in their kingdom. Okay, so uh, this is going to be true in Ezekiel and Daniel, but the big question is, why did God let this happen? Like, how could God have let this happen? So even going back then to Jeremiah's um, temple message, where he says, you trust in the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. You think that God's not going to destroy the temple. You're wrong. And so God finally does destroy the temple, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk in a minute about, you know, the glory of God departing and going up to the, the Mount of Olives in Ezekiel chapter 11. So then, so these people are in Babylon, and they're like, what just happened? Like, how could this, what does this mean? What does this mean for the nation of Israel now that the glory has departed, the temple is gone. It's the, the temple mount has been cleared, okay? So when we're, we're talking in Ezekiel and Daniel a lot. We're, we're answering that question. What does this mean, okay? And so B, the purpose of the prophecy of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is easily divided into three sections um, to announce the certain downfall of Judah and Jerusalem, all right? So that, that happens at the beginning to announce the judgment of God on pagan nations, and then to prophesy the glorious restoration of Jerusalem. The book contains many visions, some quite difficult to understand in their parts. The significance of the vision is easily discerned, but the details of some of the visions are very difficult. The book has a very orderly arrangement. Um, so Ezekiel, let's look at chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 of Ezekiel real quick. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, see how he's really specific there? As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me, and I looked, and behold, the form and appearance of a man, and behold, and below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. And he put out the form of a hand, and he took, by, took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision I saw in the valley. So, so Jeremiah gets lifted up. He's in Babylon, but he gets taken 
all the way back to Jerusalem to the temple in this vision. And at this point in the vision, the glory of God is still in the temple. All right? Um, Verse 5, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, the north of the altar gate and the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me away from my sanctuary? But you will see greater abominations. And so the, then in, uh, for the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9, this, this man in this vision gives e- Ezekiel a tour of the temple. And he gets to see all of the wicked things that are going on right in the gates of the temple. You know, I think it's a lot of talk about conspiracies these days, you know, and everybody's into conspiracy theories. And like when, when you read <laughs> Ezekiel and what's going on in the temple, like they're worshiping false gods in the temple of God, you know, and like you, you know, conspiracy, like, no, <laughs> like I'll believe in cons- some conspiracies, but they, Israel would never have been worshiping false gods right in the temple. No, they were. Like, my point is, like, it's probably, like, the conspiracy stuff, like, it's probably not, like, not what people think it is. Like, it's probably, like, way worse. <laughs> you know, like, it's the things that are going on in our world. Like, probably if we actually knew what was going on, we would be, like, even more devastated. You know, and it's the grace of God. Like, I mean, Ezekiel has to go in and he has to see these things that are going on. So he sees all of this. Um, and then chapter 10, then I looked and behold on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire and appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels under the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals between the cherubim, scatter them over the city. And he went out before my eyes. Now the cherubim was standing on the south side of the house, so they're still at the temple. And when the man went in, the cloud filled the inner court and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. So this is, this is Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem. It's very powerful. <clears throat> and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, they fire from between the whirling wheels and from between the cherubim. And he went in and stood behind the wheel. And the cherubim stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it in the hands of the man clothed in linen. And he took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have the form of a human uh, under their wings. And let's just skip down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes, and they went out with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God was over them. Then the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel in the Chibar Canal, and I knew they were cherubim, um, each had four faces and four wings. Uh, yeah, we'll stop there. But there you have, you have the picture there of, of the glory of God going out of the temple. So, so what now? What now? And then at the end of Ezekiel, in those very um, long chapters, verses 40 through 48, you have dimensions of a new temple. And this is, this is a real struggle. This is a real interpretive struggle, you know? But there seems to be this new temple with exact dimensions. And, and so you have the, the, the glory of God leaving the temple 
at the beginning of Ezekiel, and then at the end of Ezekiel, you have this new temple that's going to exist, I, I would say, in the new heavens and the new earth, and that is a place where the glory of God is once again going to dwell. Um, and if, if you read, you know, 40, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is a, a very long section of just measurements, measurements after measurements after measurements. Um, again, that's another one of those places where I would just challenge you not to say it can't mean what it sounds like it means. Like, let's, let's assume that it might mean what it actually says that it means unless we have some other reason to do so. All right, so that's a little bit of an overview of Ezekiel. Any questions or thoughts on Ezekiel? Mm-hmm. No. Ezekiel 37 is that passage about the, the valley of the dry bones and the he goes and he has this vision and he sees the bones and first the bones come together and then they have sinews and then they have flesh and then, but they're dead. And then eventually the spirit of life comes back into them and they stand up and they're a, a mighty army once again. And uh, it's a very interesting picture, I think, of, the, of Israel and, and what, I, what I would say is God's plan for Israel that he has, that he has at this point um, brought them together and there's, the bones are together, and there's flesh on the bones, but they're dead. And I just spent a couple of weeks over there, and I can tell you for certain, they are dead. You know, there's, there's not a love. I mean, it's, it's growing. It was funny. We were out. We walked out um, in Jerusalem out of the old city one night. We walked over to a, a particular spot, and there's a lot of grassy areas around the walls. And there was all kind of people there picnicking. And I think both of our boys had on their Veritas shirts, and I think I had on a a shirt that I had acquired from some missionary, and uh, a man, a Jewish man came up to us, you remember this, and he said, um, he said like, uh, greetings to you in the name of our Lord and Messiah Jesus, and I was like, ho, ho, greetings to you, and he was very quick, and he was very quiet, it was, it was like he said it, and he was gone, you know, and, but that was very, very, that was very cool, so there's, there's, there's definitely like signs of life there, you know, but uh, it, is, it is truly a, a very dead place. Speaking of dead, we went to the Dead Sea, and, you know, there's not a dead, deader place on the face of the earth. There's not a hotter place on the face of the earth, but it is just so dead, and we floated in the Dead Sea, and, you know, it feels so, um, but it's supposed to be so good for you. I, I didn't feel any cleansing. Um, as a matter of fact, I got sick right afterwards, so, yeah, I should have swallowed it. Yeah, right. I, I, Gus did. Gus got some in his eye. Um, that was a little bit of a scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's what I was going to say. It's in Ezekiel. It's in, it's in that same section there. There's a section that says the, the Dead Sea, that there will one day be fishing villages on the Dead Sea. So, you know, well, that can't possibly mean that. Maybe. I think it does. So, all right. Any, we got one more to go. Daniel? Daniel in 10 minutes. Daniel is probably my favorite. It's the one I know the best. He, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Daniel lives from 620 to 535 BC. His character, uh, he re- his character is reflected in the fact that he occupied places of authority in two successive empires. So he, he occupies a place of authority in Babylon, and then at the end of his life, he is occupying a place of authority in Medo-Persia. And I, I would say he's one of the very few 
you know, here's a thought exercise for you sometime. Who are the people in the scripture about whom almost nothing negative is said? And Daniel seems to me to be one of those people. I, I, there, there, you can't find any, I mean, I believe he was a sinner, like we are, but there's, there's nothing recorded in Scripture. Although the known facts of Daniel's life are few, nevertheless, he is revealed as a man of stalwart character and priceless conviction. He's willing at all times to stand up for what he believes. He's a true hero of the faith. Coupled with this, there is a gentle courtesy in his relations with others and a simple and humble dependence upon the grace and power of the God whom he worships. I think that Daniel genuinely loved Nebuchadnezzar, and I think he treated him as such. I think there is an affection there, even when Nebuchadnezzar gets the, gets the message that he's going to be turn, become a, a, a cow uh, for seven years, and Daniel interprets the vision, and Nebuchadnezzar comes to him and is like, well, tell me what it means, and Daniel's like, I don't want to tell you what it means. Like, you know, Daniel's not, Daniel doesn't say, <laughs> you're going to become a cow and you're going to eat grass. It's going to last for seven years and you deserve it. You know, he, he seems to be genuinely caring about Nebuchadnezzar. I, I personally, you know, I is arguable and it, and it doesn't matter what I think, but I, I think we might see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I think as you trace the, the change that comes over, even in how he speaks by the time it's at the end of that passage where he comes back from being a man, he repented. Remember in chapter 4, it says, it says I was, one day I was on my roof flourishing, Nebuchadnezzar says of himself. So he was flourishing on his roof, and he says, look what I have made. And God strikes him down, and he becomes a, a, a cow for seven years. And at the end of seven years, he looks up to heaven, and he repents and God brings him back to himself. And what, what we find over and over again in the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, makes these proclamations you know, about Yahweh. And you have to understand, those were proclamations that were sent. So the king in Babylon would then send like criers, announcers out all over the kingdom to make these proclamations. And so Nebuchadnezzar is having these experiences with Daniel, and he's making these proclamations about Yahweh, and it's going out all over his kingdom. Well, he just happens to rule the known world of the ancient East at the time. So God is using Daniel to influence Nebuchadnezzar, who is then speaking the name of Yahweh, and it's going out all over his kingdom. Okay, so there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, historical setting of Daniel, we'll go quick. Uh, Daniel was carried away in the first stage of deportation. We've already talked about that. Um, he was in Babylon the night the city fell to the Medo-Persians. That's the handwriting on the wall. Um, Daniel lived in Babylon and prophesied in that place throughout the history of the Neo-Babylonian Empire and then briefly in the Medo-Persian Empire. The purposes of God. Okay, I know we've been going for a little while, but hang with me here. This is, this is important. Um, the purposes of God in allowing Judah to be taken captive to Babylon. We've already talked about this a little bit. Judah's capture and deportation by Babylon were not accidents of history. These events constituted deliberate divine punishment upon a rebellious nation. Let me just, as uh, exhibit A, Daniel chapter 1, notice, notice how it's written. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, 
king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And listen to this. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. All right? This is not an accident. Notice that wording. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. All right? So the Babylonian exile was a period of God's indignation against Judah. However, there was a very real danger in this, namely that the pagan nations who observed or even participated in the destruction of Judah by Babylon would assume that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was impotent to protect his people, and thus the name of Yahweh would be disreverenced among the nations. So the danger then is that the people of Babylon would think that their gods beat Yahweh. And this danger is related uh, because the nations were polytheistic, those nations were convinced that a battle between two nations was in fact a battle between the gods of those nations, and those nations assumed that when nation A defeated nation B in Babel, it could only be because the gods of nation A were more powerful than those of nations B. Thus, the twofold purpose of God, which he accomplished through Daniel in the land, first of all, Yahweh used Daniel to improve the life and welfare of Jews in the land of Babylon, And then secondly, we'll skip down, Yahweh used Daniel and his three friends to maintain the honor of the true God in the minds of the pagan nations. And so how did Daniel and his friends do this? Again and again, Yahweh would contrive a situation in which the gods of Babylon were deliberately and publicly pitted in battle against Yahweh, and in every one of those situations, Yahweh showed himself gloriously and infinitely superior to the supposed gods of Babylon. So take Daniel chapter 2, right? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He doesn't know what's going on. He calls in all of his wise men, and they say, he says, all right, I don't, you guys are frauds, and here's how I know that. Here's how I'm going to check it out. I want you to tell me the dream. Like, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you the dream for you to interpret it. I actually want you to tell me what I dreamed, and they say, uh, (laughs) Neb, like, (laughs) that's impossible. We can't possibly know, and he's like, if you were really one of the speakers for the gods. You ought to know this, right? And so he says, all of you are going to be killed, right? So the guy goes and gets Daniel, and he's like, ah, I'm sorry, I got to kill you. Nebuchadnezzar thinks the wise men are stupid. And Daniel says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me go and ask my God, and he might give me the dream and the interpretation. And it says, they go, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go, they, got, they bow down, and they say, Lord, you know, if you would, give us the dream, give us the interpretation. And what does God do? He gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And, uh, you know, what does, what does Nebuchadnezzar say? Let me see. Uh, first of all, I want you to know, look, turn to Daniel chapter 2. Notice Daniel doesn't take any credit. 20, verse 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would happen after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you might, make, might, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel squarely, Yahweh, Yahweh gave me this. And then look at um, the end of the chapter, verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. All right, 
I don't think Nebuchadnezzar necessarily got saved then because in the next chapter he had the bright idea to set up the you know, statue of himself on the plain of Dura and have everybody bow down, so I think it was a process. But already he's like, okay, there's something different. Like, your God seems to be different than my God, okay? So we have that clash there. F, a very important biblical concept is introduced in Daniel. What is this concept? The times of the Gentiles. Okay, so pull it all together. What are we going to do? The temple is gone. How in the world can God and God's people continue to, to, to manif- be manifest in the world? Well, here's the thing, and this is brand new in history. Daniel introduces it. There's going to be a time. It's called the times of the Gentiles. It's talked about in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, during which that time, during that time, Israel will continually be under, under the heel of Gentile domination. So there's going to be the Babylonian Empire, and there's going to be the Medo-Persian Empire, and there's going to be the Greek Empire, and then there's going to be the Roman Empire, this fourth, this fourth empire. I would contend that we are still in the times of the Gentiles. We are still living in the time during which um, Israel is under the, the boot of Gentile rulers. Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, I don't think that's the right passage. Hold on. No. Darn it. Hold on. I might can find it. We're going to go 2244. Nope, that's not it either. Give me two seconds. Three seconds. Ah, darn it. Well, Jesus, Tyler, are you looking it up? This was going to be my whole big conclusion, and I'm blowing it. 2144. 24. Uh, verse 20. Let's start in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem, this is Jesus' words, Luke uh, 21 20 but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then know what it then that it, its desolation has come near then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are not are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people They will fall by the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. At which time, Jerusalem, I believe, uh, the the Israelites will be restored to their land in Jerusalem with Jerusalem as the capital and with Jesus as the king. All right, so what's new here, though, is this idea of the times of the Gentiles, and, and so how do we explain the temple is gone, the glory has departed? Well, God has an explanation that in that there's this, these times of the Gentiles that have to be fulfilled after which God is going to finish his work, work with the people of Israel. We will probably preach through Daniel here sooner rather than later just because I can't help myself. I love to preach through Daniel and that'll give us a really a better understanding of some of these things. So, all right. That is the overview of the major prophets. Next time we will do the overview of the minor prophets that I like to call Majoring on the Minors. I have a title for that one. So that'll be a good time. All right, well, that's all. That's it. That's what we have for tonight. Uh, you are dismissed. I'm going to drink this water. Mm-hmm. <laughs>